Well, there are a few events throughout the year that are more exciting and encouraging than when the Shepherds Conference comes around for pastors as a pastor's conference to be able to attend, to go to Grace Community Church with John MacArthur and a whole host of speakers and pastors. Uh, And every single conference I've ever attended, I've attended nine conferences, and um, every single one has been tremendously encouraging. This one, no exceptions. Uh, You know, today on Christ and Kingdom, I wanted to recap uh, my time at the Shepherds Conference briefly, but I also wanted to sort of cue up a conversation that I had there with uh, Jim Osmond and also with uh, Justin Peters. Uh, They have a upcoming event where they will be discussing uh, the importance of actually exposing false teachers in a dialogue with between them and also Sam Storms and Michael Brown. And this is to take place, uh, at least uh, tentatively, this is going to take place at the Ark Encounter over at uh, the uh, the museum there, the Ark Museum, uh, with the uh, Answers in Genesis folks, Ken Ham. And this conversation was really great. But uh, before we get to that conversation, I just wanted to point out some highlights. The conference was surrounding the issue of the remnant or shepherding the remnant. And it was a great encouragement and a reminder to us that God, in fact, has always had a remnant, always had a people. And of course, when we think about that theologically, when we think about that in light of the sovereignty of God, when we think about that in terms of the doctrine of election, and when we think about that in terms of uh, eschatology, we are reminded that God has always had an eternal plan uh, to have a remnant of people that would be redeemed through the work of the Son, the eternal Son of God, who would enter into this world to be our mediator, uh, to become incarnate, to lay down his life for his sheep, and to redeem a people as his own special possession. And, uh, and, and this remnant theology was really encouraging because uh, it was encouraging on so many different levels, not just in, in, in terms of the work of God of redeeming a people, but also a reminder to us of the identity of the people of God. You know, there's so much conversations today regarding the dynamics of our lives as, as a Christian church in this world. And so a lot of the conference also focused on how do Christians operate in this world? And a lot of that had to do with, well, what do we make of the world? And what do we make of what, in, in a sense, uh, what is the nature of this time that we're in? The Bible specifically identifies it as the, the present age. The Bible has all sorts of different ways of talking about this, whether we're talking about this age, uh, the present age, the present time. In Galatians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul calls it the present evil age. And that, of course, is going to determine for us what we think in terms of the context in which the church is in all the way leading up to the return of Christ. Now, when we think about it that way, we're reminded of the words of the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 2 that tells us that, in fact, this world is following a, a specific course. And what he uh, uh, talks about here in terms of following the prince of the power of the air. He also goes on to say that this is the spirit that is working right now in this world among the, among the sons of disobedience. And so when we talk about characterizing this world characterizing this age, the remnant and the remnant theology just reminds us that the church is a pilgrim people, a remnant people, that we are called out, we are separate from the world. And here's the deal, guys, um, as it pertains to this very conversation, it reminds us that those categories in terms of what is the world, who is the world, and what is the church, what is this, what is this remnant? Those categories will not change in this world. They will not change in this age. They will not change uh, ever until Christ returns. And so this, you know, that the the conference served um, as much as their uh, John MacArthur and the Shepherds Conference is committed to premillennial eschatology. And the very last session of 
John MacArthur, uh, John MacArthur's conference where MacArthur actually spoke made that crystal clear <laughs> because he, 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 he laid down his eschatology at the very end of the conference uh, just to put it beyond question what uh, the Shepherds Conference holds to. But all millennialist and premillennialist theology agree in terms of the fact that we are living in the present evil age and postmillennial theology absolutely does not fit within that paradigm. And it reminds us that, in fact, the worldview of the Christian is not to be anything like uh, Christian nationalism, anything like um, theonomy or reconstructionism, but because that just doesn't fit the idea of the remnant. Uh, in the Bible, the remnant, at least not in this world, not in this age, never becomes the majority. It is always the few, and many of the uh, lectures and the messages that were given actually pointed out time and again how, in fact, remnant theology in the Bible, and I think they did a great job of pointing this out, that remnant theology in the Bible is always talking about the few, always talking about uh, the small group of people that God saves from among the mass of humanity. I mean, hey, listen, it, that doesn't mean that when we get to eternity, there will not be an innumerable throng of redeemed uh, humanity. Of course, there will be. But even then, we recognize the words of Jesus that the way to eternal life is on the narrow road, and the, the road that is hard is difficult, and few will be there that find it. That is Jesus giving a summation of the totality of the ages and how that at the, the, the totality of God's eschatological scheme, eschatological program. And so uh, the remnant theology of the conference was really spot on, really did a great job of pointing out to us, in fact, that we are part of a small group, a special group, a redeemed group, and we are part of that group only by the grace of of God. And so the theme of the conference was fantastic. Also, the conference is great just in terms of pastors fellowshipping with pastors, encouraging pastors, listening to pastors, having conversations with other pastors that are in the similar situation that you might be in. For example, I met so many elders and pastors of churches that have gone through the same exact trials in ministry that I've gone through, even recently here, planning a new church, coming out of a church situation that was less than ideal and was actually quite uh, painful and unfortunate, so many pastors um, actually have uh, had testified and had related to me that they had gone through the identical uh, scenario that I went through. And I tell you, very few people can really encourage you in that kind of a season uh, more than a fellow pastor, a pastor to a pastor. And so for me personally, it was very encouraging and, um, and, and, and also, I, I would say the conference is just great for networking as fellow ministers and working on future ministry with other churches and other ministries and other pastors and theologians and other ministry leaders. And so for those reasons, I think the Shepherds Conference will remain a very valuable, valuable uh, ministry uh, for pastors like myself and many others. And so... A lot of great things happened. I met with I, I met up and, and 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 had time to spend time in fellowship with just wonderful guys. Justin Peters, Josh Bice from G three had a great uh, great conversation with him. Uh, Phil Johnson, of course, always connect with Phil Johnson. Had a great conversation with Phil Johnson on issues relating to the Trinity and Thomas Aquinas and the controversies about what's going on right now in the doctrine of God and. Um, more to come on that issue, by the way. I'll keep you guys posted on that. Uh, but I do want to. I do want to transition into this conversation that I had with Justin Peters and Jim Osman because I thought it was really, really good. It was really important, and it continues to be an issue. Hey, listen, I love theology. I love. I I love high theology. I read a theology that is very academic and rich. I love reform theology, biblical theology, eschatology. And those of you that know Red Grace Media and that know my ministry and my preaching, you understand this. But there, there is still a, a massive need in the area of the Word of Faith movement, the prosperity gospel, and the false teachers and false prophets that come with that movement, uh, false signs and wonders movement, 
um, as much as I personally am completely annoyed by that entire subject because I don't want to waste, I personally do not want to invest my time, uh, d- d- you know, refuting and engaging with those kinds of 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 uh, unbiblical uh, versions of the gospel. I am very thankful that we have people that do like uh, Justin Peters and others. So. I hope that you will enjoy this conversation. It was uh, enlightening to me. It was encouraging to me. Had a great time doing it. Uh, The audio is going to be somewhat rough because it's right in the middle of the Shepherds Conference where thousands of pastors are walking around and talking, but I hope that we'll be able to salvage enough of the audio that you can be still be encouraged and and, and gain something out of it and, and find it profitable. So, all right, thanks so much for listening. Enjoy this conversation. All right, guys. Well, uh, so we're at the Shepherds Conference. Yeah. Uh, I'm here with Jim Osman and Justin Peters, yep. and uh, so excited to sit with these brothers. How have you guys been enjoying the conference? Let's let's start there. Justin. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, this is this is one of my favorite weeks of the year. So uh, uh, unless Providence hinders me, I, uh, Jim and I come every year. Have been for the last six or so years, and uh, love it. Love not only the preaching but just the fellowship with people. So, yeah. Amen. What, what's your favorite message? so far oh man you're gonna get me in trouble I, I, honestly, okay let's say what, what's a good one that you liked a, a good one that i like well we I, heard uh, a good one today uh yes we did yeah. yes we did uh oh man well steve lawson's opening session was was great phil johnson's yeah. was great i really wanted to hear josiah Grauman's, but I, uh, I had a, another engagement and i had to miss out but i'm going to go back and watch it uh online uh James Coates, of course, that's yeah, especially yeah. given what he's been through. What he's been through, you know, that yeah. just gives a lot of credibility. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah. everything I've heard thus far is yeah, yeah, yeah. Mike Riccardi's breakout session was excellent. Yep, that's so, the one I missed, and that's the one I was supposed to go to. Yeah, Jim, what, what about you? Which yeah, one I, you loved, I love Steve Lawson's opening session that he did on uh, sovereign election, Romans nine. That's right in his wheelhouse, and he just does an excellent job. And he generated a lot of hatred on Twitter for his for that for that session yeah that just stirred up a whole bunch of fundamentalists and <laughs> libertines and armenians who just yeah. got the i mean he kicked the hornet's nest with that well, well worshipers well isn't yeah, it true though that there's still a lot of pastors that come here that are not there they're not that's right they're not quite reformed yet in that area and yeah, and they we have a we have a friend and, that's here with us and and he has a high school buddy that is here who just kind of dismissed that whole Steve Lawson thing. He just said Steve Lawson was quoting passages out of context and dead theologians with with no context to scripture. And oh, uh, he's an independent <laughs> fundamentalist background. IFB. Unbelievable. But they're here. I, praise yeah. God, they're here. Yeah, he, yeah, he called that a rated R sermon. I, I called it full metal Calvinism. <laughs> it was good though. It was, it was certainly he didn't hold back. I mean, if you if you could sit through that. And if you're not settled on the sovereignty of God, I don't know what you do with that that message. Now. So, okay, so let's talk a little bit about what I wanted to talk to you guys about, which was you guys have an upcoming uh, dialogue. Yeah, we call it that debate dialogue. Nobody wants to call it a debate anymore. I don't really think it's, it's going to be a debate. It's not a formal debate. It's it's okay. going to be a an enthusiastic, probably somewhat tense dialogue. Okay, Jim, tell us who's participating. What's the subject? And where's the venue? So the venue is uh, April 1st at the Ark Encounter. Justin's going there to preach at a Ken Ham event. So Brandon Kimber with American Gospel, he's organizing, renting, or reserving a room somewhere nearby where Justin and I are going to sit down with Michael Brown and Sam Storms. And we're going to have a conversation about false teachers how we identify them, why we identify them, why, particularly why Justin and I are so quick to identify what we regard as false teachers, charlatans, hucksters, and loons on the charismatic movement, and why we think Michael Brown is so slow to identify the charismatics and the hucksters, sorry, the charlatans and the hucksters in the charismatic movement. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's not going to be about cessationism. Per se, it's not going to be about the continuation of spiritual gifts or manifestations of that today. And, and we're certainly not trying to find ways in which we can agree on those issues. What we're really attempting to do is to gain some clarity on those issues. Why is it that we disagree and exactly what do we disagree about, um, particularly in terms of identifying false teachers? 
Yeah. Yeah, and I know uh, Brown has wanted me to debate him on cessationism, continuationism, restorationism, whatever, but that issue. And it's not that I don't think I can hold my own on that issue with, with him. I'm, if I may humbly say so, I'm pretty confident I could. But that, that A, that debate's been done before. He's done it before. He's done it with James White. Yeah. B, I'm not really a debater. That's not my thing. I don't think we debate Scripture. We just teach Scripture. But C, uh, the issue here is not, and like what Jim said, this is not really about the that debate. It is exactly what Jim said. Why is Michael Brown so reticent to call out false teachers for what they yeah. are like Benny Hinn you know if, if Benny Hinn is not a false teacher then the term has no meaning <laughs> it's a meaningless term if Benny Hinn is not well one. but also Justin correct me if I'm wrong because I don't follow Michael Brown or know much about him but he does purport to have a discernment ministry right <laughs> well yeah yeah I don't know that he would call it a discernment ministry okay. but he but he has uh, given messages, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah apologetics, yeah. yeah, definitely apologetics, and uh, uh, and he has done podcasts on the importance of discernment, mm. which just about made my head explode because he has endorsed and is friends with some of the looniest of the loony that yeah. the charismatic movement has ever spawned. Yeah. Uh, Sid Roth, he's been good, close, personal friends with Sid Roth for 40 years almost. And, I mean, Sid Roth, if, if you know anything about him, you can look him up on YouTube. But he has the craziest of the crazy. You, you would have to... You would have to be walking, theologically speaking, you would have to be walking in the wall stupid, theologically, to not see that the people that he has on his program week in and week out are absolute rank charlatans. Yeah. And yet, Michael Brown's been a good close personal friend of his for four decades. Yeah. How, how big do you guys think this venue is going to be? And, and uh, like, who do you think is going to come to this? Uh, it's a private conversation, so yeah. it's recorded oh. in a in a room. It's oh, just is it like a studio thing? It's okay, studio great. Thing. Yeah. Okay, yeah. got it. So this it. is not in, done in in public in front of people, and it will be uh, edited by Brandon Kimber and probably oh, go up on it. American Gospel oh, TV yep. as one of their products. Got it. Maybe four thirty minute episodes or something like that. I'm not sure what Brandon's got planned or if he even has it settled yet. What how what form it's going to take? Got it. But it is going to be. Um, Brandon is very good. You know this because you've yeah. worked with American yeah. Gospel. He's very good with editing people fairly yeah. and not making them, yeah. not allowing them to make themselves look like fools needlessly and accurately representing them. And Michael Brown, I think, has seen that with Brandon, which is why he agreed to sit down and have this conversation. Yeah, yeah. And it's going to be very difficult, I think, for Brown because uh, you know we're going to press him on these issues and. The, some of his best friends and some of the people that he has endorsed and promoted and even written forwards to the, like Kevin Zadai, he wrote the forward to Kevin Zadai's, one of Kevin Zadai's books. This is a guy who claimed that Jesus showed up at the foot of his bed one night playing a saxophone. You know, I mean, I, you know, at what point do you call these people out by name like the apostles did, like Peter did, like Paul did, like John did? Yeah. So, but isn't it remarkable that a lot of these guys? I know somebody once tried to tell me that I needed to go and give Mike Bickle a second chance and this and that. And I clicked on a YouTube video featuring Mike Bickle talking to a youth group, and he tells the youth group that Michael the Archangel came to him, and he addressed Michael the Archangel as dude. Right. And he said, "Dude, you got to be kidding me!" Because Michael the Archangel, of course, said he was selected for revival. <laughs> And he said that he said he said I turned to Michael the Archangel and I said, "Dude, you've got to be kidding me!" And I thought, if Michael the Archangel appeared to you, I don't think you would be calling anyone, dude. Yeah. I think you'd be falling pale faced. Right. <laughs> yeah. From, you know, exactly. I think you'd go face first on the ground. Exactly. <laughs> so, exactly. Why is it that these guys they they purport to have a spirit filled ministry? It's all about the spirit. And yet, they do some of the most irreverent things you can even imagine. 
Well, Emilio, that's just the point. And I, I tell people in my teaching, as a cessationist, one who believes not that all the spiritual gifts are seeds, but only the sign gifts are seeds, I cede no ground to the charismatics in my pneumatology, in my doctrine of the Holy Spirit. The charismatics would look at the three of us, and they I can't tell you how many times I've heard this. Oh, cessationist or Justin Peters, he doesn't believe in the Holy Spirit. He doesn't believe in the power of the Holy Spirit. And I say, to the contrary, as a cessationist, my view of the power of the third person of the triune God, the Holy Spirit of God, is so high that I do not believe someone can be indwelt by the Holy Spirit and teach the things these people teach, give the false prophecies that they give, bring such reproach upon the name of Christ, put words in God's mouth that he did not say, put forth in front of people lying signs and wonders, and, and being dwelt by him and feel no conviction about that. If these people were truly Christians, where is the conviction of the Holy Spirit of God on their lives? Where, where is it? And you just don't see it. And so I, my view of the Holy Spirit is far too high to allow for that to go on for years and years, decades and decades. It's just, so as cessationists, we should see no ground to the charismatics in our view of the Holy Spirit. Now, you said that the people participating are going to be you guys, and then there's Michael Brown and Sam Storms? Sam Storms, yeah. What? Yeah. What? Uh, Sam Storms is a Jonathan Edwards theologian. Yeah. He has a, he did a PhD th thesis on Edwards. He's a very smart guy. Yeah. Um, I've read some of his writings. They're really good. What, what is Sam Storms doing right now in this area? Like, why is he even involved in this conversation? Well, originally it started out with if it was going to be Justin and I, Michael wanted a second person there as well on his side of the theological aisle okay. in terms of spiritual gifts. So he had suggested Craig Keener coming in because Craig wrote a book on miracles. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And you know what I'm talking about. Oh, yeah. So I, that didn't work out with Craig's schedule, I think, because of his teaching schedule. And so he, he suggested Sam Storms. And we said, that's fine. And I've read uh, Sam's book, Practicing the Power, Practicing the Presence, I think it's called. And I know he's reformed soteriologically where we're at, yep. and yet is a continuationist. So, I mean, in terms of salvation and the doctrines of grace, he's going to agree with Justin and I. And in terms of spiritual gifts, he's going to agree with Michael Brown. He's in a pickle. Well, yeah, as long as, as, long as, <laughs> as, long as we don't stay. As long as yeah. Michael doesn't let it get into discussion on soteriology, he'll still be two on two. So. <laughs> yeah. You guys need to somehow do what uh, Paul did and try to pit the try to try to pit the right. two camps against each other you know the hope of the resurrection and all of a <laughs> yeah, sudden right, tearing right. each other the, 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 the Pharisees and the Sadducees you know right, right. Uh, okay so what do, Jim what do you what do you hope to contribute to that that conversation um I, I don't know what I can uniquely contribute um I'm hoping to bring I'm, I'm hoping just to bring some clarity I think my my quickness, if you will, to identify false teachers and name them by name comes out of a desire that I have as a pastor to protect the church and to identify the wolves. I think that that is an important function of a shepherd. And it's an, an important fruit of discernment. If we're going to say that we can know truth from error and tell right from wrong and identify true teaching from false teaching, then it doesn't do the church as a whole or even a local body any good if the shepherd is unwilling to say, hey, this is what false teaching is and here's how you identify it and here is the difference between the essentials and the non-essentials and we may we may reserve fellowship over non-essentials but we can have no fellowship over differences in essentials and so as a shepherd I have to be able to warn my people and say these people are dangerous and these people are wolves and these people maybe they're not dangerous yet but they're sure heading in a dangerous trajectory yeah. you know there are guys there are people in evangelicalism today that we wouldn't necessarily say are false teachers but we would say man their trajectory is really concerning really concerning the way that they have gone soft on certain things and though they have not uttered blatant heresy certainly the, the way in which they're handling some of the crucial issues of the day signals a willingness to compromise on social issues and essential doctrines and so these are people that we should be watching and these are people we should stay away from you know two different types of people and the health of a local body 
the sheep need to be able to look to their shepherd and say, okay, he's, he's, I trust this man because he's caring for my soul and he's warning me about people who will endanger the state of my soul and my own sanctification and walk in holiness and I should listen to that shepherd. And so woe unto the shepherd who, who's willing to say, yes, there are false teachers out there and yes, there are wolves in sheep's clothing, but I don't want to name them because I don't want to offend anybody or I don't want to upset my sheep or I don't want to compromise my position in the evangelical publishing world because I'm willing to name teachers. So I'm hoping to bring sort of the shepherd's pastor's heart to it that how can we say that we are practicing discernment right. and shepherding our people if we're not willing to identify for them yeah. clearly the threats yeah absolutely i mean that's that's one of the key imageries of a shepherd right i mean exactly they, they right. kill the wolves yep. and guard the sheep you know and if you're not doing that uh, so when it comes to the maybe the broader discussion of continuationism cessationism we just did a podcast we talked about that uh, Mike is on the podcast with me and another pastor uh, from Texas, Kevin, and uh, we just we try to point out like the sufficiency of Scripture and how we don't lack anything just because we're not engaged in what people are saying are spiritual gifts. And so maybe talk a little bit about that, just in terms of that discussion. How does the sufficiency of Scripture play into, um, you know, how we approach that conversation of the, con the continuationist position today. Well, that's that gets to the heart of the matter there, Emilio, because I, I tell people that today in, in evangelical circles, whatever that term means anymore, sure, uh, sure. Uh, the, the debate is not so much over inerrancy. At least theoretically, that debate has been won. Theoretically, never mind Andy Stanley. Or at least lines have been drawn. We know where everyone's at. We know where everybody's at. Lines have been drawn. Yeah. But the the real the real battle today is over sufficiency. Yeah. Is God's word sufficient? Now inerrancy and sufficiency are inextricably linked. But but if you take the charismatic position, the continuous position, then by definition you've got to abandon sufficiency. Because if there's still a need today for private visions, dreams, revelations, God giving you new information that is not already in Scripture. Uh, if, if there's a need for that, then by definition, the Scriptures aren't sufficient. So I've got to have something more. And, and when, you look, when you look at the charismatic movement, where are the charismatic expositors? Where are they? I mean, every time I listen to a charismatic preacher, it's 90% stories, anecdotes, the latest dream vision. It, there's no exposition of scripture going on in the charismatic movement. Uh, where where are the charismatic expositors? It's mm -hmm. like it's like Bigfoot. You know, there's lots of rumors and some grainy pictures, but no actual proof that these things exist. So slight apologies to one of my good friends here. But um, so yeah, it's it's just they're not there. Yeah. The whole the whole charismatic movement is built upon experiences, emotions, feelings, uh, extra biblical visions and revelations, claim trips to heaven. All of this dramatic stuff. It's yeah. it's not you, you don't see an emphasis on, on the on the logos yeah. on the word. Yeah, yeah. Now, do you guys do you guys um, now, Jim? Pastoral perspective, because that's what you're you, you're hoping to add to that conversation too. Today, what charismatic theology is doing, what it looks like, talk about some important issues in spirituality, how that affects a person's walk with God when they have this, this position of all the gifts continue today. What can that what are some of the pitfalls and dangers and, and, and things and cautions that you would that you would concerns you would have for that issue? Yeah, so I address this in one of my books, um, God Doesn't Whisper, where I deal with the notion that God continues to lead us through dreams, visions, still small voices, inner promptings, nudgings, random thoughts that pop into our heads, a, a verse that jumps off the page in scripture, or signs and circumstances, confluences of circumstances. I run across people who have come out of that movement and that theology, as I once did, who felt frustrated because they never heard the audible voice of God. They felt frustrated because they could never know when the signs were lining up appropriately and if that was really God speaking or something they ate last night that they're upset with it upset them. Mm -hmm. That's the type of lack of assurance, lack of confidence, lack of spiritual maturity that that position fosters. 
Now, the charismatics would come back and say, well, it's just that you weren't listening enough or you didn't know how to interpret those signs or, yeah, I've heard God and I've had this experience and, and they will point to experiences, but it is that very lack of these certain experiences that causes people sometimes to even doubt their salvation. So when you tell somebody, look, the, the, the shepherd promised that his sheep will hear his voice and so you should be receiving private revelations. And then these sheep start listening for the voice of, of Jesus, and they hear nothing definitive, nothing certain. All they get is random thoughts that are popping into their heads. Then they start to question their own salvation, as I did when I wrestled through this early in my Christian life. And they start to wonder, am I really a sheep? Does Jesus not love me enough to guide me that way? I hear other people talking about how he guides them and he clearly speaks to them, but I'm not having these experiences. So I think I think you nailed it right on the head, and, and, and this brings up kind of two issues that I think that's what you're saying is that it almost creates like a there's like a, a caste system, right? A two-tier caste system. There's the gifted, the non-gifted. There's real spiritual people, and then there's those of us who, for whatever reason, aren't getting the same amount of spirit. Right. The have and the have-nots, right? So talk about that. Yeah. Or well, did think, you want to talk about that? Well, I was just going to say, and this will this will maybe jog your but uh, you talk about in Sam Storm's book. It's well, I have it in my seminar too, but he. He says, uh, and I don't have the quote in front of me, but he basically says the 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 revelatory gifts, uh, words of knowledge, uh, tongues, and all this thing, getting dreams, visions. I even remember he uses the word trances. He said that brings uh, a nearness and an intimacy with God that is not true of the other uh, of the other charisma of the other gifts. So if you get dreams, visions, trances, you go to heaven maybe, that's an intimacy with God that you don't have, say, if you have the gift of teaching or the gift of mercy. That's not that's not as intimate. That's not as special. And that goes exactly what you're saying, this caste system and a modern, modern Gnosticism. Gnosticism. Yeah. How is that different than the Gnostic belief that I needed these people with a special gift or a special ability, a special connection to heaven to give me the truth regarding X, Y, and Z in my Christian life, or that I can be somehow initiated into this in this group of people who have this special knowledge, this special revelation that nobody else has. Yeah. That, that whole notion that some of us get revelations from God and, and hear the voice of God and others don't itself does create almost that Gnostic dichotomy. And I've experienced just myself as a pastor ministering to people over the years that this leads to incredible amounts of self-condemnation because people feel as if they have done something wrong and that others are doing something right they can't achieve it I mean I had a guy a deacon in my church long time ago who as a child would come home and literally pulling out the pots and pans in the kitchen pulling out the flour and the oil and he's trying to recreate the, the, the miracles of Elijah and he's crying he's literally as a child crying and banging on the ground because he can't do it and his parents are telling him you don't have enough faith can you can you believe that first of all second of all there's a ton of people in bondage to that. Yeah, and on the other side of that is the spiritual pride of the other group. Yes. So you have the group that's seeking it that doesn't get it. And they don't get it because it's not promised to them in Scripture. Scripture nowhere promises that people will be able to do these signs and wonders. It's, it's assumed and it's poorly exegeted from Scripture, but there's no promise that God will give all of us the revelation that he gave to Peter, Paul, and John. So on the other, but on the other side of that is the spiritual arrogance and the pride of people who suppose that they have these gifts, who think nothing of just saying, well, the Lord told me for you that this is his will for you and you need to do this. And God gave me a word for you. And they walk around like self-appointed oracles of Delphi, giving directions and instructions to any Christian who wanders into their lives. And that, that itself is just a spiritual arrogance. And that's not to say, and I'm painting with a broad brush, it's not to say that everybody who believes this sure. is a spiritual, yeah. um, you know, full of pride. Yeah. But it is to say that the theology itself fosters not only a frustration and a despair on one end, but also a spiritual arrogance and pride on the other. Yeah. And, and you can't get away from that so long as you have this view of the spiritual gifts. Let's talk about that right there because I think you have been the object of a lot of <laughs> a lot of hate mail brother <laughs> right there's <No>. <laughs> <laughs> you you have received a lot of bad press in in the in the idea that well you're painting with a broad brush you're not accounting for people that are 
that are, you know, uh, level-headed, that are good theologians. How do we how do we safeguard against that, number one? And how do we respond? Because I've received the same criticism. But how do you guys respond to that to say, look, I can name good theologians out there. I mean, hey, you know, uh, John Piper, Wayne Grudem. These guys, they, they, they've done a lot. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones. I mean, they've done some really good stuff. Yeah. You can't lump them in with the Benny Hens of the world. No, you can't. And, and uh, I'm glad you asked that. So, And you guys can both talk, speak to this real quick because I know you guys probably both have something I, I to say. I don't think, my position is I don't think that those men represent the mainstream of the charismatic okay. movement. They are the they are the rare exception. A guy, a, a man of, I said, this to, I said this to Michael Brown when I talked with him in a Zoom meeting one time. I said, Michael, your, your stuff on homosexuality in America and homosexuality in scripture, your stuff on Jewish apologetics, your stuff, your exegesis of the Old Testament is excellent. It is absolutely phenomenal. And I have benefited from things that he has written on some of those subjects. I like it. It's great. He's In terms of Old Testament scholarship, he is top-notch. But I've told him, I said, I think you have a huge blind spot in this area of spiritual gifts where everything that you do in terms of exegesis and discernment go right out the window. And it's like they, they don't even apply anymore. It's like it's two different people. And I said that to him in with all respect. I have benefited from him. It's not... That everything Michael Brown sure. says is horrible. Right. It's just that I don't know how somebody with his skills and clarity of thought in some areas can be so lacking of discernment and, and clearness of thought in others. And I've, I've said that to him privately and honestly. And in some ways, if, if you just ask me, what do you think about Michael Brown in this? I'd say a lot of tremendous respect for him in this area with what he does and the stand that he takes and the heat that he takes for it. So I'm not, I wouldn't even paint Michael Brown with a, a broad brush myself. Yeah, and I, I make the point in my teaching that there is a difference between uh, a, a continuist in and of itself and Word of Faith, New Apostolic Reformation. So I say that all Word of Faith, NAR, all of them, all of them, 100%, are charismatic, but not all charismatics are word faith in the Excellent. Excellent. That having been said, it's a very slippery slope yeah. from where like Wayne Grudem and Sam Storms and John Piper are. It's a very slippery slope from their position to where Benny Hinn is. Uh, and the we're often accused of oh you're you're painting with a broad brush you know you're lumping them all in uh you're just talking about the fringe of the charismatic movement here's the reality Emilio the fringe of the charismatic movement is not Benny Hinn and Kenneth Copeland or Joel Osteen or Joyce Meyer or you know Andrew Womack or that's not the fringe that's the mainstream of the charismatic movement that's the lion's share of the charismatic movement the fringe of the charismatic movement are men like Wayne Grudem and John Piper and Sam yeah, they're the exception they're the exception yeah. they're yeah, the yeah. fringe yeah and when you look out in the third world it's not the John Pipers and Wayne Grudems of the world that prevail it's no. it is it is the wackos yeah I mean, if John it's Piper the worst to, of the worst. Yeah, if John Piper were to go to India and preach a crusade, he's not going to draw over a million people like Benny Hinn did. He's not going to do that at one event. It's not going to happen. Um, and I'll, I'll say this too, and, I, and I'll, I'll, I'm sure I'll bring this up with Sam Storms in our in our meeting. And I say this with all respect and, and deference. But even Sam Storms himself, a couple of months ago, as of this recording. Uh, went on a YouTube channel called Remnant Radio, and he said that he disagrees with Benny Hinn on a number of things, had, thinks he has serious error, but he counts Benny Hinn as a brother. Now, guys, as I said, if Benny Hinn is not a false prophet, the term has no meaning. And so here is Sam Storms, who is as careful of a charismatic as you'll find on the planet, and the kind, and yet he won't call yeah. Benny Hinn a false prophet. So that that so we're hesitancy even was within John Piper in his in his slowness to to deplatform and be in any way critical of Todd Bentley in the early days right. of Todd Bentley's right. stuff. Yeah, I mean, this is a guy who claims that God told him to kick an old woman in the face with his Piper boot, and you you can't call out somebody like that immediately. Yeah. You know. It, it, Nothing else needs to be said. I don't. I don't need anything else from this guy. No, he's a false teacher. So. There's no substantive. Dis, there's no substantive difference between 
Sam Storms and Benny Hinn in terms of the spectrum that they're on. The d difference is one of degree and not of substance. That's right. So Benny Hinn is Sam Storms' theology taken to its logical conclusion and run amok. But there's no theological guardrail that I could perceive that would keep you keep you as a Sam Storms and not becoming a Benny Hinn, which I think is why he can look at Benny Hinn and regard him as a brother. Right. Because theologically, he can't point to any reason in this man's life because the theology is the same. It's just a different degree of it. Mm. Mm. That's right. What, what does it do in a church? What is it? How does it affect? I mean, we're here at the Shepherds Conference. We're talking about the remnant. We're talking about, in, in many ways, you know, uh, God's church, God's people, how to shepherd. How does this affect the local church? How does how does charismatic theology today, how does it affect the local church when that starts taking root? Let's say you didn't start a church and it just, out of the gates, Benny Hinn blowing people over, but it's starting to seep in. It's el We've probably all heard stories. The elders are starting to go a certain direction. What do you, to that, what do you say? I, I think there's obviously a danger there that when you begin to go that direction, again, there's no theological fences there to keep you from falling off into radical error in a, a lot of other ways. So I, I just, as a pastor, I've never had to deal with that situation. I've had, I've had people in our congregation who have left because of my stand on cessations. We had people who say, I disagree with your spiritual gifts, and, and they start to become more reformed in their thinking, and, and that's obviously going to lead in a certain direction and to a certain conclusion regarding spiritual gifts and the sufficiency of Scripture, and they will come with me to a certain point, and then they've got to jump ship because they can't they can't buy the whole enchilada, as it were, because to be logically consistent, I think, I, I think Sam Storms is logically inconsistent. I think Wayne Grudem is logically inconsistent. So to, to buy into the logical consistency, I think that they've got to they've got to embrace cessationism and they won't do it and so they leave so I, you know I we watch it carefully in terms of does this person think they're getting special revelation I preach a lot on the sufficiency of scripture I'm on the record in writing more than one book three of my four books deal in some manner with the sufficiency of scripture and its application in Christian disciplines and in Christian thinking and so our people are well fed on that we don't really have that creeping into our congregation but I would definitely encourage anybody who's got elders going in that direction you need to you need to get on this quickly and have meetings and conversations with your elders yeah. because it is a slippery slope and a dangerous road to start down there's no turning back once you start down that road yeah. it's just a matter of you just you're gonna end I think in theological ruin every time now I have another question but Justin you want to add anything to that point because the local church is so important and when you have people in the local church I've had people uh, reach out to me, email me, call me, tell me, hey man, I'm a little concerned at the direction my elders are going in. They're starting to play Bethel music or you know whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What, what do you, what counsel would you have for folks in that situation? Yeah, just to kind of add on to what Jim was saying, uh, watch for it as a pastor, watch for it in your church, because once that takes hold, uh, it, it, unless it's checked and checked quickly, it will, well, Paul says, right, it spreads like gangrene. Error always begets more error. And so then you begin to have people in your church, you, have, you begin to have a congregation that is not basing their theology off of the written word. They're, they're basing their theology, they're basing their their own relationship with Christ on experiences. Do I do I hear still small voices? Do I get dreams? Is God speaking to me this way? And, and then the emphasis always, without exception, is is exclusively on these extra biblical experiences. And so their their walk with Christ, their spiritual health is measured by these things rather than what the Word of God objectively says. And so it's a very dangerous thing. You've, again, you've abandoned sufficiency of Scripture and it's a, it's a very short trip from where Sam Storms is to where Benny Hinn is. Uh, so I have certain key arguments that I like to go to when we talk about cessationism. What are what are what what are your key arguments, or what's the key passage or key argument that you go to, Jim, when you wanna when you wanna start, uh, you know, discipling somebody in this area, and you wanna start giving them the cessationist position? I think I begin with the sufficiency of Scripture because ultimately, if they understand what the sufficiency of Scripture is, and that 
In Scripture, God has given to us everything that pertains to life and godliness. We need nothing else for decision making, for day to day living, for ourselves, for preaching the gospel, for our progressive sanctification, understanding the redemptive plan of God, understanding the future, the history of, of God's redemptive plan. All of that, Scripture is completely sufficient, and we need nothing else. And I think once people grasp that and begin to rely upon it and implement that into their lives in terms of reading the Word of God and and understanding the Word of God and cherishing the Word of God, and they see how the Word of God bears fruit in their lives, once that begins to happen, they, they don't see the need for any of these other experiences or any of these other gifts because really I want to I would want to take away from people the thought that I need these other things in order to be spiritual to be holy to be accepted by God to function in my giftedness to be a, a fruitful as a believer to gr progress in sanctification I don't want people to feel like they need anything other than the Word of God and the means of grace that God has given to us in and through his word to accomplish those purposes so that's where I begin I wouldn't even begin by trying to make the case for society cessationism from scripture mm, yeah. other than just to say scripture is sufficient and I think that understanding that is the case for cessationism yeah I agree. And when we talk about cessationism, we're not talking about the cessation of all spiritual gifts. Right. That's key. Yeah. Still believe in the gift of teaching, yeah. administration, helps, faith, all of those yeah. things. It's just yeah. not yeah. the miraculous language. Yeah. yeah. Well, man, I just appreciate you guys very much. It's, this has been very good. But oh, you want to add something? Yeah, yeah. I'll yeah. Take go, on ahead. go ahead. Go ahead. I'm I'm trying to be sensitive to your time. Yeah. And, and well, we you, can... if you want to go another half hour, brother, I'm <laughs> I'm at the Shepherd's Conference. I don't have an agenda, man. I'm just chilling. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm enjoying ahead, this. Uh, but I would say too a uh, couple things. Even most charismatics, not well, not maybe I should say some. Some charismatics would acknowledge that big A apostles are no more. Uh, yeah. That's okay. important. Yeah. Uh, it is very important. Yeah. So they would admit, okay, yeah, there's no more apostles today like Peter, James, and John were apostles. So if you believe that, congratulations, you're a cessationist. <laughs> because you've just seeded the cessationist argument. That was a gift, right? He right. gave some as apostles, some as pastors and teachers. So that was a gift. And if it's no longer operative today, congratulations, you have just seeded the entire cessationist argument. Mm. And another thing, if all of the sign gifts were operative today in the church, here's the thing, guys. There would be no debate about it. Right. Absolutely right. It wouldn't right. even be debated. Yeah. It self-evident. Because it would be self-evident. Self there would be no doubt as yeah. to whether or not. Yeah, yeah, I mean, right. it would be undeniable. Yeah. Even the opponents of Christ, the opponents of the gospel. Read through the book of Acts. Read Acts chapter 3 and 4. Yeah. They, The opponents of Christ could not deny that a notable miracle had taken place. Yeah. You know, the healing of the, right. of the crippled man. The, as the with man. Christ. As with the Christ. healing with the blind man, that yeah. the enemies could not deny. They could the not the, deny the only, thing, the only thing they could ask right. is, "Who did this to you?" Remember? Yeah. Right. And the resurrection of Lazarus. Yeah. They're, they're, they couldn't deny it or explain it away. They, they just said, "We just got to kill this guy." Everybody's yeah, we got to kill him again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's we got to off him. Yeah, but so um, uh, I can, so you can't deny genuine apostolic signs and wonders. I can absolutely deny what I see in the charismatic movement today. Yeah, I can deny that real quickly and enthusiastically. I can, I, I couldn't deny what we see in the Book of Acts. I can deny that Todd White is going around lengthening people's legs by about a quarter of an inch. I can deny that. So, yeah. yeah Dan, Dan Phillips made a great statement one time in our church when he was there for a conference. He said, Jesus did the kind of miracles that no unbeliever could deny or refute. Modern charismatics do the kind of miracles that no unbeliever will believe. Yeah. That's a good point. A money quote yeah, right there, yeah, there's a book. I don't know if you guys are aware of it. I, I just recommended it to somebody else earlier uh it's by richard gaffin it's called the fullness of the times it's his commentary on acts and he deals extensively with cessationism in there it's so good uh it adds it adds a different layer to our cessationist argument it's a bit more of an indirect argument but it's still really good and i think the the point that gaffin is seeking to make is that Pentecost, the apostolic age, it's a unique period of time in redemptive history, not to be repeated, certainly not to be made normalized or normative for every day, right? Whereas every Pentecostal church on the corner is promising that you're going to have your, your, your own Pentecost every Sunday. 
Yeah. And and what Gaffin is saying is that this has a very distinct role in redemptive history. And if we don't identify it, isolate it, and single it out for what it is, we ironically cheapen the very thing <laughs> that we're saying we're experiencing, which is Pentecost. You destroy Pentecost by doing that. So, that's right. That's right. Yeah. Absolutely. Any any closing? When, when everything's Pentecost, then nothing is actually Pentecost. That's right. That's right. That's right. <laughs> if there's tongues of fire everywhere, then yeah, who cares if there was tongues of fire in the room somewhere, right? That's right. Uh, anything, anything you want to add? Closing oh, statements on that? Not really. I just uh, appreciate the I look forward to this. And, uh, well, I look forward to that. Yeah, that it, recording. It'll be. Uh, we are too. It'll be interesting. Yeah. <laughs> and, and there's very serious issues here, and I'm, I'll have to. I have to say this to Brown to, to keep my intellectual uh, integrity about me and keep a clear conscience. Yeah. The errors with Brown in not calling these people out, in my view, is so egregious yeah. that if he can't do it or if he won't start to do it, then I would have to say that he's not qualified to be in ministry because oh, yeah. one of the, oh, yeah. We're, yeah. we're told, right, Paul wrote to Titus, teach, Titus 1 verse 9, teach sound doctrine and refute those who contradict. Brown's not doing the latter half of that. Correct. And, and you've got to do it. If you're not willing yeah. to do it, then uh, you can't. In, in all fairness to Brown, and I would point this out to him as well, he has to be, believe the same thing about Justin and I. He cannot possibly believe that Justin and I are qualified to be in ministry because here I am as a preacher of the word, pastor of a church, and if I am so undiscerning and unable to identify what he regards as the true work of the Spirit of God, if I can't identify that, then there's no way he can also affirm that I am qualified to be in ministry. So to be intellectually consistent, I would say that if, if he is, if we believe that he would be unqualified to be in ministry if he can't discern that, but he would have to say the exact same thing of us. And if he can't say the same thing of us, then that just proves our point that he is unwilling to identify what he believes is a threat to the church. What could be a bigger threat to the church than two men who have public platforms who cannot identify the true work of the Holy Correct. Spirit. That has to be a threat to the church in his yeah, view. Absolutely. And if he can't identify us as threats and false teachers, then that goes to the very point that he's, yeah. he's hesitant to identify people that he regards as genuine threats to the church. And to quote the Prince's Bride, clearly we are at an, at an impasse. <laughs> I hate to end it on the Prince's Bride, but that's it. That's where we're going to end it. But anyway, guys, thanks so much, man. Great conversation. All right, everybody. Well, that was the conversation that took place at the Shepherds Conference uh, this past March with Jim Osmond and Justin Peters and myself. It was a very encouraging, uh, as even as I told you, that it was uh, really just an edifying conversation with two great brothers, and I uh, hope you enjoyed that. And so make sure and tune in to all of our, our episodes, follow our podcast, share, and subscribe to the podcast. Leave us a good comment, a question. Also, uh, find us on YouTube, of course, for Red Grace Media content. Much, much more uh, future media content coming to YouTube there. And also, um, our church, City View Church in Frisco, Texas. Make sure and tell your friends about our church. Uh, just go to cityviewchurchfrisco.com, where you can find there our weekly sermons and also a home Bible study that I'm doing, where I'm teaching all sorts of different subjects and going through the theology of Romans and, and, and other things that we're going to be launching there. You can watch all of those on YouTube. We have uh, a different playlists for each one of those. And uh, again, just get to know City View Church in Frisco, Texas. If you have friends or family that are in the area looking for a solid, biblical, reformed uh, church, um, I hope that you will find the content on cityviewchurchfrisco.com encouraging. And so with that, guys, till next time, God bless you. Thanks for listening to another episode of Christ and Kingdom.